Good morning. Let's come back to our seats. Thank you, worship team, for Christmas music. It's allowed now that we're in December, right? I think it's allowed in November and December, but no? Okay. We can try. It is good to see everyone worship together today. Um, Just a quick reminder regarding um, Living Nativity. I know that we have had a wonderful response uh, for townspeople and speaking parts. If you are a townsperson or a speaking part, basically if you're in town at all or in character at all, we are starting to do costume assignments today. And so right after the service today, you can go over into our kids' building. Room number five is the upper right room, and they'll have some costume assignments for you. We can do that right after the service or right after the education hour today. And so um, it's quick. They assign you, put your name on a costume, so that way you're not in blue jeans and a T-shirt in Bethlehem, and which is might ruin the impression. I don't know. It's probably not what Bethlehem was like 2,000 years ago. But um, I'm excited. Thank you for all who have signed up. Um, we have um, a record number of people helping this year so far, and it's a testimony to our desire to share the gospel and to portray the gospel. And so thank you, especially for those going out of their comfort zones with speaking parts and things. We greatly appreciate it. Um, it's part of what we do as a church together, um, along with Calvary Chapel Anaheim this year. And so we're excited to partner with them. Um, last night, I um, went into our family room. And Suze was, was laying on the couch and watching TV. And I sat down and it was, it was an amazing story. It was a story of a, a broken hearted woman from a city, city life that goes to a small town to see family she hasn't seen in a long time. And while she's there, she meets a young man that she knew years earlier that now is growing up into a very handsome, studly man. And um, he's changed, and she almost leaves and goes back to work, and then he catches her at the airport and, and comes back, and they fall in love, live happily, happily ever after. Hallmark. Hallmark? Yeah. And you know, a lot of other networks are copying Hallmark this year. So there's like five different networks doing these movies. It's fun because you can watch any of them, and it's the same plot. <laughs> Sorry, Suze. She's watching. It, it's it's true. But you know what was interesting? I watched the whole thing. And I couldn't stop. It drew me in. And it was engaging. And it was fun. And, and I, I am embarrassed to admit all this in front of you. Why? why? Why did it draw me in? Because stories draw us in, right? Good stories draw us in and bring us into somebody else's world and, and allow us to see things and understand things in a different way. You know, yesterday we, we celebrated Evie's life. And throughout the service, we heard story after story about how God's love had touched her. She followed God and then she shared that with others. And those stories were inspiring for us to do the same. You know, yesterday morning we were talking um, about Connie's um, conversion. And um, Connie passed away this week, and our, our sympathies to both of your families. But we were talking about how Connie, in this room, in the prayer room, in a Sunday school class, asked the, started asking questions about Jesus and started asking questions about, well, wh- where do we go when we die? What happens here? Because our souls don't die, so what happens? And, and how does Jesus play into this? And she accepted Christ right there that day at 80 and was baptized here. And these are stories that should draw us in. And, and in both of those cases, they drew, drew us into their lives and to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Today, we're going to see an example of that with the Apostle Paul. As his story, he uses his story to draw people in. And, and really, the bigger picture for today, and what I want us to see in his example, is your story and my story is part of how God wants us to help others come to Christ, to help others hear the best news they will ever hear, to hear the news of forgiveness of sins, of changed lives, and of eternal life. And God might use your story to do that. But here's the other part of today's text as in Paul's example. Your trials, your difficulties, 
are part of your story, right? They're part of your story. So if your story is going to help people come to Christ and your trials and difficulties are part of your story, you can do the logic and say, then we should look at our trials and difficulties as part of a way that we can help people know Jesus as an opportunity for people to know Jesus. When we, when we left Paul last week, he was in the temple. He came. He was trying to make nicey-nice with people and show, hey, I'm not against the law. I'm not against the Old Testament. I, I am following this. And he goes through the purification rituals. And um, he's showing that he loves the Old Testament and Jesus, the New Testament. And the result of that is people come and stir up a mob. And they start beating on him and wailing on him, trying to kill him. Not the result of good, not the best result of good intentions. And then we see the Romans come and arrest him, which we thought was going to be the bad thing that he was looking forward to, but that arrest ended up saving his life. And so what, what man intended for evil, God used to save his life. And we left the story there last week as Paul is being carried away, carried up the steps in, into, um, the Roman fortress there, away from the people. And that's where we pick it up this week, because I promised you there was more to the story, and we'd cover it this week. So turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, and we're, con- we're going to continue in verse 37 and go the first chunk of chapter 22, because we're going to see how Paul dealt with this. How did Paul deal with a very serious trial? How did he deal with almost being killed again? Seems like that's just one of the patterns. Maybe he's getting used to it by now. I don't know. And and how does he deal with this? Does he just shut down, curl up into a fetal position and see what happens? Or does he use this as an opportunity for the gospel? And we have the same choice when we go through trials, right? We can just let our trials stop us and overwhelm us. And, and they're hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying trials are easy. But we could let them stop us or we could use them as opportunities for the king of kings and use them for good. And so we come to verse 37 and our summary for today is Paul uses the beating and arrest as an opportunity to share their gospel through his testimony. Paul uses the beating and the arrest as an opportunity to share the gospel through his testimony. And so sort of the prologue to today is verses 37 through 40. And I've titled it in your notes, Seeing the Opportunity. Paul looks for opportunity in trial and uses his abilities to open the door. Paul looks for opportunity in the trial and uses his abilities to open the door. Let's look at the text and see where we get that. Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, okay, so he's being carried off um, to the barracks, He said to the tribune, the guy in charge, may I say something to you? And he, which he's being carried off. He's just been beaten near death and he's polite. This is awesome. May I say something to you? Hey, can I, can I have a word? And he, and the, the tribune said, do you know Greek? And, and it's an odd interchange, but the tribune has this idea that Paul is someone else. He's a troublemaker, a rebel. And, and if you spoke Greek and the ways Paul spoke, it would have shown he was an educated man, that he, um, he had a, a, an intellect. And the very fact that he was speaking Greek to the Romans means he was using the tools that he had to reach out and to, to get inroads with this tribune. And so he's this cultured, educated man. The, the tribune is surprised. He's like, is that Greek I just heard? Because he had assumed in the next verse, are you not the Egyptian then who recently, um, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And so he thinks this, he's this guy, this is Egyptian in descent, who's leading some Jewish rebels. And some history here is helpful. And, and one of the historians of the time, Josephus, gives us some idea that there was this Egyptian false prophet or someone that claimed to be the Messiah, but he was Egyptian. He had led anywhere from 4,000 to 30,000 men to the Mount of Olives, is it, the story is told. So they were in the desert, the Negev down below there, just a, a desolate region. They come to the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem. And they come and they're going to take down Jerusalem. And, and the story goes on that um, he promised these men that when they got to the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, they would see the, fall, the walls fall down. 
didn't happen, but um, that's what he promised them. Turns out it didn't go as they planned. Now, now these men, it says assassins there. That's the word Sakari, and it means um, terrorists, assassins, but it literally means dagger men. And these men, these assassins, would, in, in their robes and in their clothing, they would hide daggers. They would go into crowds at festivals. Remember, we're at the Feast of Pentecost. They would go into crowds at festivals. They would get near either a Roman official or a Roman sympathizer, pull out the dagger, stab them, put it back in, and just mingle back in the crowd. And so they, they had the whole assassin thing down. And that was who, who the Romans thought Paul was in charge of. And, of course, then they arrested him because they're just trying to keep the peace, really don't want dagger men running around and, and killing your friends. And so they had arrested him. But the fact of how he addressed them and that he addressed them in the Greek um, means this, that's not who this was. And so they were surprised. Paul replied, again in Greek, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. And so he, he says, I was born in Tarsus, which was a well-known, it was an important city, which is why he uses the phrase, no obscure city. He says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And so he comes and takes the initiative in a respectful way as they're on these steps, as he's the one that's been beaten, as I, I don't even know how he's thinking about this. And he says, hey, can I talk to the people for a minute? Can I address them? Because Paul sees what he's going through as an opportunity for the gospel. I don't know if I would see this as an opportunity. I don't know that any of us would. But he took the initiative because his heart is for his people to know Jesus. And so he he dispels this wrong assumption about him. In verse 40, he was given permission. So the tribune said, okay. He's surprised at who he is. You talk to him. And so it says, Paul standing on the steps. Remember, the steps would go from the court of Gentiles in the temple up into the barracks, uh, up into the, um, the Roman fortress there. So those steps provided a platform that he could easily address all the people down in the court of Gentiles, the Jews who had just tried to beat him to death. And so he addresses them. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we get the next chapter is what he said. And so get the picture here. He gets permission. He stands on the platform. He calms them down because they want to know what he has to say. And then he starts to speak to them in Hebrew, it says, or some of your translations say Aramaic. The word can be either because Aramaic was replacing Hebrew at the time of the the language of the Hebrew people. So it was probably Aramaic at the time, but they used the same word to to refer to both. But the point is he speaks to them in the language they would understand. So to the Romans, he speaks in the language they would understand and respect. To the Hebrews, he speaks a language they would understand and respect. And so what we see here is Paul is taking the initiative and using the skills that he has, his education. He's smart enough to say, okay, how can I get an inroad for the gospel here? And so he bridged those boundaries with both of these groups, which is amazing. Which is exactly what we should do. As we look for opportunities for the gospel, how can we bridge boundaries? How can we see opportunities? How can we look for these? Without sinning, without compromising, but looking for things that we have in common. And the next, the next section is going to talk about that a little bit more. But as you think through things like your neighbors, in relationship with neighbors, with family members that are sure to visit this year, with, with coworkers, how can you look for opportunities? And, and there's, there's opportunities that you can take the initiative both verbal and with your actions. Verbally, as, as life transitions happen, as difficulties happen, knock on the door, take, it, take some cookies. I guess that's the action more. But say, hey, I'm praying for you. What can I pray for you about? And then if that goes into a discussion, one, one of our neighbors and I were talking about prayer. He doesn't know the Lord. And we were talking about prayer and um the, the next question, we, we kept talking, so I'm like, okay, so, so what do you think about prayer? Do you think it works? 
And that provided a fascinating opportunity into who Jesus was and into the gospel. Just simple questions like that that are follow-up, that are questions when you're genuinely interested in hearing their answer, can have an opportunity to share the gospel or to, to start to share the gospel through the love of Christ. Trials often give opportunities because people want to know how you're doing. You can ask how they're doing. Your neighbors probably already know that you leave every Sunday morning and go somewhere. And then sometime in the afternoon you come back. And you might sometimes get asked, where are you going? And this is not the time to say, well, I'm going to go see a bunch of friends. It's the time to say, you know what? I'm going to church because I'm going to worship Jesus Christ. See what they say. You know, and another verbal opportunity that we're having with our neighbors right now has to do with the rise in crime, which how many of you like the rise in crime? No, no hands. Come on. Come on. There should be at least 50, 50. No, no one likes the rise in crime. It's a trial. It stinks. But that village could be an opportunity because with our neighbors, we're meeting new neighbors. We're saying, how do we deal with this? How are you doing with that? Um, you know, we, we see them looking over their fences at, at the railroad tracks where a lot of stuff's happening around our house right now. And so we've had opportunities to begin to connect over something that Satan intends for evil. We're going to use it as an opportunity to get to know our neighbors. Because then as you're talking about crime, you can say, you know, we're talking about answers here. But really the problem is this is a fallen world. This is a broken world. I haven't had anyone yet counter me on that. And then that can lead into, there's an answer. There's hope through Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to pay for that sin, to take care of that sin. The problem is people haven't turned to him and believed in him, and they're still going their own way. And do you see how these things become opportunities? Paul took this opportunity, took the initiative when he didn't have to, and we can do the same thing. So then we get into chapter 22, and we get into Paul's story. And so share, I want to look at the example of Paul. Some of this story, much of this story, we've already talked about in Acts chapter 9. It's his testimony. So I want to look at how Paul uses it and, and learn from that, because it's a really simple formula here that we can remember. So, so this section is sharing your story. Paul shares his testimony. And, and really, where he goes with it is so simple but it's hopefully something we can remember as we talk to people. How do you share your story? He talks about who he was before Jesus. He talks about how Jesus changed him. And he talks about who he is after Jesus. Can we remember that? Before, change, after. And, and those, those, by the way, are your next three points. You can fill them in and then listen. Um, and not worry that I'm skipping points or something. And we're going to see that's what Paul does, but the same thing is true for us. We can share who we were before Jesus. Then we share how, Jesus, how we met Jesus, how he changed us, and then who we are now because of Jesus. And that is a more compelling story than a Hallmark movie. That is a story people will engage in because it's your story, how you've been changed. And that is so powerful to share the gospel in that way. And so we come to verse, verse 1 of chapter 22, and this is the section of who you were before Jesus. Paul starts, brothers and fathers, which by the way, that is a, a, a term addressing them that is also building rapport. He's calling them family. He's, fathers is probably referring to the Jewish leaders as a sign of respect. And so he, he starts with, with this sign of respect, He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And remember, they've arrested him for hating Jews. They've arrested him for defiling the temple and being against the law of Moses. And he's he's going to show through his story that none of those things are true, but he's also going to show and point people to Jesus Christ in a brilliant way. And so he says, this is my defense I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Because remember, he's accused of hating Jews and being against the law. And and, and he's speaking Hebrew. And they became more quiet. And he said, and in verses 3 through 5, 
he gives his pedigree. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the, the renowned rabbis of the time. This is like high education, Harvard style. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Verse 3 is fascinating because he's like, I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised here. I'm a Jew. I was educated in the law beyond anything you could believe. I was zealous for God, as are you. And, and in a way, he is, is I don't want to say complimenting them, but he's recognizing their zeal for something. And what he's doing here, he's not only talking about who he was before Jesus, he is establishing common ground. He is building some rapport to say, I'm not that different from you. Then he goes on. He says, I perse- verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. And again, we've talked about this. The way um, is talking about Christianity. This is the way. Yes, I know. Um, and, and this is the, the following of Jesus Christ, Christianity. He says, I persecuted them. I persecuted the way to death. I was killing Christians, he told them. Which again, they just tried to kill Paul for being a believer. Binding and delivering to them to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, because they had given him letters approving this. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. And so he starts with his pedigree. He's proving he is a loyal Jew. He's proving he loves the city. He's proving he has a great education in the law. He's proving that his life was all about being zealous for the law. And so he he finds a way to build rapport through this common ground. Now, sometimes we think of who I was before Christ that I need to have like a really, really horrible story. Like I was into drugs and, and, or I was, I was killing people. Hopefully you weren't killing people. You know, I was, whatever it is. And we, we think we have to have this really bad past to portray the change that Christ gave us. No, we are all sinners. Every one of us, no matter what your past was, we are sinners. And the work of Christ in our lives is miraculous. And so we don't have to feel bad that we don't have a bad backstory. What, what backstory is Paul? Yes, he, he is mentioning killing people, but his backstory he is using to identify with them. He is using it as a specific rhetorical tool to, to build this rapport and say, I understand. When we are, are sharing our story with people, our backstory, it is, it is wise to, to pick things in our backstory that will help us identify with people, help them identify with us. And, and you find things in common, and then you draw people more into your story, and they see the change that Jesus gives even more. And that's what Paul is doing here. Now, how, how do we put this into practice? We, we put this into practice by acknowledging common ground, by acknowledging that life happened before Jesus, and it wasn't great even though there was common ground. And and when you think of common ground that you can find with people, there are all kinds of ways you can do this. You can find common interests. If you are looking to share your story with someone at work or or a neighbor or a family member, maybe you find out common sports teams you like. Or maybe you find out a rivalry like Dodgers Angels or something like that. Um, We'll just leave that there. Um, Maybe you find common hobbies that you can do together. Um, another another way to build common ground is to think of vacations and, and, and travel. People love to talk about their vacations. Ask them where they went. Find some places you've both been. Talk about it. You're building common ground. Something that, that is a, um, just a real easy way to build common ground is talk about kids. Everybody likes to talk about their kids. Most people have pictures on their phone of their kids. Now, unless they don't have kids. That would be weird then. But... Um, if they have kids, it's a great way to build common ground because then you can lead into deeper questions like, so what do you want for your kids? 
What are your goals for your kids? And so just as Paul here is building common ground as he starts to tell his backstory, we can find ways to build common ground. If you're looking to reach a neighbor for Christ, go to something they do. Go to an event. You know, I've been to an Alcoholics Anonymous event for, for neighbors to, to, to just enter their lives and, and enter what they're going through. And we can, we can build that backstory. And, and in part of talking with them, yes, I wasn't an alcoholic, but I had family members that were alcoholic. And, and so, so that enables a chance to, to build some common ground, even in, in, in my backstory, where we couldn't relate on just that exact thing. But we can follow Paul's example. You know, his backstory is, I'm zealous like you. I love the law like you. Yeah, I was, I was doing it to the extreme. But then between verse 5 and 6 should be a giant but, but God. And so verse 6 starts what God did, how Jesus changed him. And so we have his life before Jesus, and it seemed like it was going along great, but it wasn't what God wanted. And so we get to verse 6. Paul shares how he meets Jesus. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And we we saw this, like I said, in Acts chapter 9. This time it's Paul telling his own story. This is what he chooses to defend himself. Let me tell you my testimony about Jesus. Let me tell you who Jesus is. And he says, okay, he's, he's coming to Damascus to incarcerate Christians, to drag them off. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around him, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is a divine encounter. Most of us haven't had this level of encounter, but this is Paul's story. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And at that moment, he is confronted with who Jesus is. The Jesus that he thinks died on the cross and didn't rise on the third day. The Jesus that he thinks people are stupid and out of their mind for following because he's dead now is talking to him. That's an earth shattering point. And, and in our story, as you think through your story, when was the point in time that you realized Jesus was God? When was the point in time that you realized that Jesus, as God incarnate, came to earth at, at what we're celebrating this month, was born in, in that, by that manger, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross bearing the penalty for our sins because he had done nothing wrong? This is the point that Paul is confronted with. I don't, I don't think he probably accepted Christ yet or came to faith in Christ yet. I think that's, this is the beginning of that process, though. But when you're telling your story, when did you realize who Jesus was? We live in a world now where people don't know much about Jesus. Maybe that's some myth, that's some fable, and they don't realize that he really walked the earth. He was a real man, and we have lots of evidence for that. And he really came and died on the cross, and he really rose from the dead three days later. That's this moment for Paul. Now, those who were with me in verse 9 saw the light and did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So they saw the light, heard some sort of noise, didn't understand it. The message was for Paul. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, Paul is struck blind here. He's blinded physically so that spiritually he'll be able to see. I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And so you see here a willingness of Paul to change. A willingness, what shall I do, Lord? Something is up. Yeah, if that happened to us, something would be up. But at what point... Did you in your life start to, to not only realize who Jesus was, but open your heart to following him? And that's part of your story. That's something you need to include in your story. One of the, the authors said, your own story of personal conversion is the heart of a convincing testimony. 
especially when you back it up by godly living. I love adding that on. Because if we're not living for God, maybe don't share your story. But it, what is Jesus, when did you meet Jesus and what has he done? Paul goes on. Because now he, he's taken blind to Damascus. And in verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And so Paul tells the story of Ananias. We don't get the same detail that we had in 9 because Paul was blind, and this is his perspective. He didn't get to see all of the things that were happening behind the scenes that Luke reported earlier. But here, Ananias, did you catch how Ananias is described by Paul? A devout, a devout Jew. He followed the law. In fact, he's well spoken of by the Jews. And so, again, Paul knows his audience. He knows the defense he's, he's making. And, and he is trying to, to tie that, that Christianity, that Jesus is the Messiah that fulfills the Old Testament, not defiles the Old Testament. So he's tying the two together. He says the two go together, which is why we study the Old and the New Testament. And so he speaks of Ananias as um, just a, a really outstanding Jew. In this situation, he doesn't mention to them Ananias was a Christian. He's getting to that. That's part of his story. He's wise in how he tells a story. He tells a good story. Ananias comes to Saul, who is Paul, same person, and he receives his sight back. And that is a testimony to the truth of this message, that the power of God is on this. Verse 14, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. The he there is Ananias. He said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Think of the phrase again, God of our fathers, the God of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Moses, the, the, the God of the prophets. This is the God that appointed Paul to know his will, to see the righteous one, the Messiah. So Paul's just getting all the, all the points in here to see Jesus and to hear a voice from his mouth, to hear the, the voice of Jesus. And, he, and Ananias says to Paul, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And so Paul is sharing here how he was changed by Jesus. Jesus, the power of Jesus gave him his, his physical sight back. The power of Jesus gave him spiritual sight to recognize that he is the Messiah. He is the only one that saves. He is the only one that forgives sins. And this is from the God of the Old Testament, the same God, the one God, the only God. Just a little Easter egg there. It also says, you'll be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And Paul is already getting in there that his mission is also to the Gentiles. Jesus is for everyone. It's for everyone. And that's going to cause problems here in a moment. And in verse 16, Ananias, or... And Ananias said to him, gave him a challenge at the end. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. And the construction there, the calling on the name of Jesus means believing in Jesus, saying, I know you're the Messiah. I know you're God. I know you died for my sins. I give my life to you. I believe in you. And out of that comes the forgiveness of sins, cleansing What a gift of grace forgiveness is. We hold ourselves guilty for so many things. But Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. And he can only offer that because he is God himself incarnate who paid the price for the sins of the world, for all who believe. And Ananias says, you've called on his name, your sins are washed away, get up and go be baptized. And the baptism was an identification with Christianity, an identification with the church, but more than that, an identification with Jesus Christ. He says, go make it public. Go, go seal the deal and say you are a follower of Jesus. Which, by the way, even today, we're still called to be baptized. 
And we're still called to publicly acknowledge that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you've never taken that step, we would love for you to take that step sometime. Talk to either myself or one of the other pastors here, and and we'll make it happen for you. Because it's a public step that follows not just the example of Paul, the instruction of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here, he gets up and he obeys. So this is the middle part of his story. How did Jesus change him? How did he meet Jesus? Now, when I grew up thinking of testimonies, this is what I thought of as a testimony. And, and, and it's the core. It, it definitely is the, the meat and the sandwich. But think about how did you meet Christ? And think about it ahead of time. How would I share how I met Christ? How would I share how I came to faith? You know, I, I already mentioned for Connie, it was the story of this room and in the Sunday school class and, and asking questions and her eyes being open to some of the questions as she realized she didn't know what would happen after this life here. Now she does. She's with Jesus. She's with Jesus in peace. And healed is a beautiful thing. And so how would we share our faith? Again, sharing our story isn't hard. Who were we before Jesus? How did we meet Jesus? And then we get to the next section, what happened to, to Paul after Jesus? And, and the other thing I would say is he isn't, he isn't listing everything under every one of those categories. He doesn't give a five-hour thesis on who he was before Jesus and then a three-hour statement of how Jesus changed him and then, oh, man, I got 20 years you know, since. No, he, he knows his audience and he summarizes and condenses in a way that it's a compelling story. And so we come to that third point. Who are you after believing in Jesus? And Paul is going to recount his call and, and what God has called him to do, but through one particular incident, incident. Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And we actually don't have this recorded earlier in Acts, but it's probably after he, he had, had done some study and he comes to Jerusalem to, to meet the elders and um, they're concerned because this gentleman who was killing Christians now says he's one of them. And um, so at that time, we have now Paul sharing what happened. And it says, I went to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple, which, by the way, he's showing that he loves the temple. He's worshiping there. He's, he's honoring the traditions there. He, so in his defense, he's sharing the gospel. I fell into a trance. And saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And, And he being Jesus said, go, for I will send you away, far away to the Gentiles. So let, let me explain what's happening here. He comes to Jerusalem and, and he has this, this vision from God, transfer from God, and, and God says, you need to go. They're not going to accept your message. Paul pushes back a little bit. I'm like, is that the word I want to use? Push back against the instruction. And Paul is talking with God. He says, wait a minute. They know that I was persecuting them. They know I was going from from place to place, arresting Christians. They know I was part of killing Stephen. Don't you think I might have a little bit of credibility here? Maybe they'll listen to me because I was like them. And in this case, God says, no, go. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I have a different plan for you. Now, it's interesting because now all those, that same argument of Paul is why he's getting an audience here. He, he ends up using that argument that, yeah, I was zealous like you. But God's plan was for Paul to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to fulfill the last part of Acts 1.8. And he did. This is, this is after his third missionary journey. He has planted church after church after church. And God has blessed his ministry because he obeyed. But the moment he says, God told me to go to the Gentiles, the crowd goes nuts. And that's next week. 
It's ongoing. So this is all his defense. He's telling his story. And they were listening great. They listened through God spoke to him. They listened through you're blind and God opened your eyes. They listened through that Jesus is the Messiah and is God. They listened to all that. Where do they go nuts? You, you, you're going to Gentiles? Praise God he did, by the way. We're here. And it's interesting because they had such hatred in their hearts that they could not stand any more of the message. But Paul didn't compromise the message. He said what his call was. He had shown how the God of the Old Testament himself directed the gospel. And he had shown how the God of the Old Testament directed it to go to all men. But they wouldn't have it. But that's what Paul's call was after knowing Christ. And he mentions that there's persecutions. He mentioned that um, he knew that, that his message wouldn't be accepted. But that was the life that God had given him and called him to. So how do we put that one into practice? How do we talk about what our lives are after Jesus? Because I think this is probably one of the most important parts of our testimony that we forget. Sometimes we say, I accepted Christ, gave my life to Christ. I have eternal life and that's the end. But village, life in Christ is so much more than that. It's, it's how he walks with us. Emmanuel is what we celebrate at Christ, Christmas, God with us. And, and as we talk about the effect of salvation, as we talk about who we are after Jesus or because of Jesus, we are talking about God with us. And so in, in, as we tell our story, this is the, the time to get a little more personal. Maybe we talk about what forgiveness means to us. And you think about since you accepted Christ, what does forgiveness mean to you? What difference has forgiveness made in your life? What has that done to guilt and living with guilt? Because that is compelling to know that I deserve this, but I was forgiven and given grace. You know, part of your story is what hope do you have? And if you've lost a loved one that knows Jesus, this is a great chance to talk about hope. Because we know that those that believe in Jesus will spend eternity with him. And if we believe in Jesus, we will also spend eternity with him and we will see them again. And that hope is so desperately needed in our dark world. Maybe think through, if you're thinking through your life since Jesus saved you, maybe think of different mile markers in your life. What are significant lessons you learned or trials or situations where you saw God with you? Those are part of your story. For me, I may often include times where God called me into the ministry, out of the business world. It's just a crazy story of some of the things that happened. Maybe it's a a story of, of significant trials and God helped you through those. Paul goes to the most important thing in his life, his calling. He says, the most important thing in my life is to go to Gentiles, to go to the world and see people come to Christ. We have an example of Paul. A man beaten close to death, arrested, being carried off, saying, wait a minute, wait, wait. Let me talk. And he shares the most important story anyone on that court will ever hear. And he shares who he was before Christ. Passionate, zealous, but for the wrong things. Lost. Still going to hell. And then he shares how how Christ met him on the road to Damascus and changed everything. And said, why are you persecuted? Why are you against me? Why won't you come to me? And Paul's heart changed. And he came to Christ. And we saw that now afterwards, he's a completely different person. He wants to go share the gospel to the Gentiles. He wants to to go to Jerusalem and share the gospel with them, the very people that uh, share the gospel, the, the belief of the very people he was just trying to kill. And so he showed how Jesus turned him around completely. And so our question that we come out of this with today is, do we know how to share our story? 
Are we looking for opportunities? And then have we thought through who I was before Jesus, how Jesus changed me, who I am after Jesus? That may be what helps someone come into eternity with Jesus Christ. And sometimes I, I, know, I, I know our church, and many of us have been believers a long time. I've been believer, a believer for 51 years. It's really strange at 39 how I can be, but um, 51 years. And sometimes it's hard to remember to share my story. Sometimes it's hard to remember life before Christ. I didn't have much life before Christ. But Jesus still met me. He still changed me. And my life since then is where I need to focus that story. What has God done in your life that you can share? And don't forget to share it. Those of you that have been believers a long time, part of your story is that God has been faithful for that long and hasn't let you down. I have walked with Jesus for 51 years and his claims have never been proven false. And he has always been with me. That's a story. That's faithfulness. And that's what we need to share. Just a a couple of opportunities to help us do this that that are coming up. And then then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. One of the things that I think we need to do is, is on the opportunity side, create opportunities for people to ask questions. And so we have some things, and these are at the, the welcome booth out there. We have some stickers. I know this is sort of silly. Ah, maybe not, because actually people have asked me about these, and it's started conversations. Some stickers, a couple different sizes. Um, they're great for car windows, and these are, these are actually stickers, not static cling, so this time they'll stay on more than a week. Um, but have things like this and let people ask what it is. It doesn't say Village Bible Church. It just has a V. People are like, what's that? What a great conversation starter. Um, they're both the size you can put on hydro flasks. I know that's the thing right now. And so put one, take one, put it on your hydro flask and, and let people ask questions. Some people put stickers on their laptops. Um, put it on the outside. Um, I'll leave that there. <laughs> The other way that is just a tangible way to start to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start being like Paul, taking advantage of opportunities to share the gospel, is what you've already heard. This Saturday is our Project Touch. And, and some of you have never done Project Touch, but most of how many of you have been part of Project Touch in years past? That's like 90% of people. And I could, I could invite people up to share stories. Phil shares stories of people they, they've gotten to know. We share stories. Um, our houses are often in the, the apartments across the way. And the welcome there is great. But what we do Saturday morning, about 10, 10, 15, we put together these little care packages for them. Takes about 20 to 30 minutes to put the packages together. So we're, we're not talking a three-week commitment. We put the packages together, you take some addresses, and you go to the doors and you leave them at the door. You can knock and say Merry Christmas and give them to them, or if no one's home, we leave them at the door. And that's it. It is as as easy to do as anything we do, and we have seen people come to church because of that. We have seen people come to Christ because of that. We have We have seen relationships improve with our neighbors because of that. Part of that package is going to be an invitation to Living Nativity. I would challenge you, come Saturday. Try it. It takes about two hours of your time. But it's a way that we as a church, as 150, 200 people can leave the building together. It's actually really cool to see 100 people leaving, leaving into the neighborhood. Um, and we can start to touch our neighborhood. And it's, it's a first step. I, I know that. It, it's, we are not pinning people against the wall and say, accept Christ or die. We're saying we love you. Here's a gift. And so I encourage you, come Saturday. The more that we have, the, the, the quicker it goes, quite honestly. But also it makes a statement to our neighborhood. We have people every year now waiting at their door, waiting outside sometimes. In the apartments, it's really fun because word spreads. So as soon as the kids start to see us go over there, all of a sudden, boom, they've gone to all their houses. And, and word spreads that village is doing something that loves their community because God loves them. Be part of that. Don't miss that. It's an amazing day and an amazing 
opportunity. So that's just a couple of, of tangible opportunities. I want to highlight those um, week by week to say, okay, this is how we can tell our story. This is how we can follow Paul's example. Look for opportunities and share Christ. We want to move into celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And what an appropriate day to celebrate the Lord's Supper because we're talking about the change Jesus makes in our lives. And, and the Lord's Supper is a symbol It is just a visual symbol of what God has done in our hearts. And so the bread represents, the the little crackers represents the body of Jesus Christ. Because we know he was arrested and he was beaten. He was scourged and then nailed to a cross. And he died in our place, a death we should have died for our sins. Him having done nothing wrong, being the exact incarnation of God the exact image of God, because he is God. That's what the bread represents, that he willingly gave his body for us. The juice represents his blood that was shed, and that blood represents payment for sins, and it represents forgiveness, because since he didn't have to pay for his sins, his blood could cover our sins, which is a great transaction for us. But because he loved us, because of his grace, He gave his body for us. He spilled his blood for our forgiveness. And so these symbols, they don't don't do anything other than remind us. They're, They're a memory tool to remind us month by month of what God has done. And so if you are a believer, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, please participate. Take the take the cracker, take the juice, because it represents remembering what Jesus has done in your life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet, again, we are so glad you're here. I pray today's the day that you find out who Jesus is and that he can change your life in amazing ways. And if you've made that commitment, please participate. If you haven't, just pass it by and think about it. Ask more questions. This is for those that that have made that commitment as a sign of that commitment. But as we take, remember what Christ has done. Remember the change that he has made in your life. Let me pray and thank God. Lord God, thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you that Jesus came and lived life on earth the full extent, died on the cross for our sins in our place. Lord, that grace we could never repay because we never earned it and we don't deserve it. Lord, but thank you. Thank you for your gift. Lord, I do pray that if anyone is here that doesn't know you, that today is the day that their life changes completely and they follow you. Lord, thank you for your word. In your name, amen.